What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with another loaded hardware knock mailbag. It's our first one in a while. I have a bunch of questions that built up in our Discord. So we're going to focus on those. But now for the quick plug, join our Discord. The link is in the YouTube and the podcast descriptions. That's where mailbag priorities are going to be made. I always like to do one per week. I've not been able to do that. Um, sometimes I like to put out two per week, and we will go to Twitter. We'll even go to YouTube. But Discord is still the best way to come in, chat with me, chat with everyone that's in there, and get your questions in. I do prioritize those for mailbags. Also, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, please, please, pretty, please hit that subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcast. Um, and on YouTube as well. Both mediums helps us out a ton. Really trying to build up the YouTube channel. We're closing in. We're only a couple hundred away, less than 200 actually from 2K subscribers. I'd love to hit that mark and many, 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 many more. So please subscribe to us on YouTube. And also um, the best way to really help out the podcast, uh, there was an article that was published to get us up the ratings charts when you're looking at Apple specifically is to actually follow uh, the podcast. So if you're listening to us on YouTube, head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow the show anyway. Ratings and reviews are mega appreciated too. Follow us on all the socials. Those are also in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. Quick schedule programming note for anyone who cares about this before we really dive in and only take about 30 seconds. I'll be doing this mailbag. We'll be closing out this week with two uh, NBA team lookaheads. We're going to roll out that train. That's a fantastic series where I bring on guests who cover, follow, root for every single team. And we go 45 minutes to an hour plus normally on their prospects for the upcoming season. Really dig deep. I'm very proud of how that series turns out every year. Um, we're going to be rolling it out again fast and furiously. Um, it's already up and running. We have Sixers up as of this recording. And I will have, I guess I could spoil it, Thunder and Rockets are going to round out this week. I am, however, traveling during which time um, I have a project that's coming out where I get into I had it's a something I done for Bleacher Report and I've been approved by Bleacher Report to release an audio and video version of it where I talk about it and read back um, the biggest what if moments for every franchise. I pulled experts again, people who cover follow every single team about their biggest what if for the franchise. They gave me responses, so that is going to be released while I'm traveling. Then when I come back, I will get back on the team look ahead grind, and those will be just spit out, spit out, spit out, spit out. So if you don't see them up for like you know two weeks. Um, this is my usual September uh, attempt to abscond and hope that there's nothing that breaks that mandates I immediately work, but it could. I'll be bringing my podcast equipment, my laptops, my cameras, my my lighting, um, and we'll hope that the you know the house that I'm staying in will have that the internet connection holds up. That took longer than 30 seconds, but I just wanted to give people a heads up that I'm starting the team look aheads now to sort of get out in front of it. But I thought it was best to not try and get too many in the bank and then hope to release them while I'm away since the Sixers one was already a little bit dated by the, the signing of Montrez Harrell. And so we'll do sort of those, the evergreen what if content, and that'll be fun to see. You guys should respond when we get to your team, um, what your biggest, what if is for them, but we can now dive into this mailbag had a ton of great questions and we will begin with the one from where does it actually, I have so many um, that are in here, but I think let's start with, Fool asks, with Chet out for the season, if the Thunder somehow tank well enough to get their pick um, again, who would win the rookie of the year race between Chet and Wemby? I don't know. I mean, I'd probably pick Victor Weminyana. He's just like this like seven-footer with an eight- to nine-foot wingspan that plays like a guard or a wing. 
Uh, if they're on the same team, that would just be absolutely mind-mouthing. Chet does when he's going to be healthy. Just such a bummer. We haven't gotten in a lot to that on the podcast. I will get into it more when we do the, the Thunder look-ahead, which is <laughs> coming out very shortly. Um, it just sucks. I was really looking forward to seeing him play with Shea Gillis-Alexander, the way his spacing was going to open up things for Shea and Josh Giddy. But he should be if he's, you know, I'm not too concerned long-term about this foot injury. It, again, it wasn't him just being pummeled by someone because he's too skinny. Uh, it was non-contact, which is always sort of a red flag. Uh, if this leads to permanent foot issues, then yeah, that that's going to be certainly concerning. But I'm hopeful that um, he's able to come back. And if he's healthy next year, I absolutely would put him in. Even if Scoot Henderson and Wembenyama or one of those two are on the Thunder or another team, I would still have Chet right there because he, he could be potentially transcendent in his versatility at both ends. I would love to see him and Wembenyama together. I Having Shea on that team with them, and I, some people still really like Josh Giddy, but Lou Dortz would also be there. Uh, that man, this is, I wouldn't call this a blessing in disguise for the thunder. I do think this is going to be sort of not the final season of their rebuild, but they were still going to look at this as a transition year, regardless, um, another transition year. I shouldn't say transition because they're in the middle of the rebuild, but they were always going to look at this as a rebuilding year for them. Uh, it probably gets to the point where we don't have to worry about them shutting down as many people now. And maybe they don't even do that. They could be bad enough. I still think that the defensive company we've seen under Mark Agnold up there, uh, if you want to ensure that you're one of the bottom three teams in the, not just the West, but the league, you probably do need to get to a point where, you know, Kenrich Williams and Lou Dort and Shea Gilders Alexander aren't playing. I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't want to see it happen. I won't campaign for it. I don't call this a blessing in disguise though. I think the thunder, they might've been too good. If you wanted them to get Victor Wembenyama or Scoot Henderson with Chet, um, they still might've, Again, I feel like this would be the last year they would do this, and I'm not advocating for it, but this still feels like a year that they were going to really decide, hey, um, we're going to, if we have to shut players down towards the end of the year, once we're out of the playoff picture, um, that's before we start making really more aggressive goes of it during the regular season or maybe tinkering with the roster to be more of a win-now proposition. But sucks for Chet. I cannot wait to watch him next season, and I would not be opposed to seeing him go head-to-head with Weminyama, you know, on a separate team, but if they're on the same team, like if SGA is still there and it's him, Chet, Wembenyama, I just, I don't even like I'm my mind can't wrap my head around that core. Uh, this one comes from Asriel underscore PC. Can Westbrook hurry up and get traded already? Um, and best case scenarios for the Lakers to get off his deal. So I don't buy into Russ and Patrick Beverly sharing a one point two five eight four second hug as evidence that everything's hunky dory and that they want to play together and that this is going to work out. Maybe it does. I still can't shake the fact that Beverly might have cost the like the Russ of the the Russ KD era Thunder a title when he dove into Russ. Russ injures his meniscus and that started this. You know they weren't all related, but that was the first of just injuries derailing all these Thunder playoff campaigns. I just find it hard to believe. Uh, that being said, if it happens, like time, not time heals everything, but enough time has passed where maybe Russ doesn't care. But like Beverly's talked shit about him in the semi-recent past as well, as has Russ. So I would just be shocked uh, if this ends well for the Lakers. I do think they need to move Russ. It's not even just he's a terrible fit, but it's just his salary number. You're better off divesting into deepening your rotation. The trick is, though, can you find a deal where it makes sense to give up both your first-round picks? And really, the only one that's... If you want to be honest, would I give up two first-round picks for, and these are some of the scenarios, to get Heald and Turner? I would. Would I do it for the Jazz package, where it's like, if you're getting Bojan and Conley, or is it Bojan Bogdanovic and 
Malik Beasley or more like a boy by Thomas Jordan Clarkson. I'm probably not doing that. Just Miles Turner's young enough to where if you were going to get him, that could be a very long-term marriage for you. Um, I understand why LA would do either. I also get, it doesn't mean that let's say Miles Turner isn't worth a Lakers distant first round pick. I think he is. It would just mean that the Lakers don't want to go that direction, which is fine if that's what they're admitting to, but them not making such a deal doesn't mean that Miles Turner isn't worth it. Uh, but when we're getting into those scenarios, the only one that's really come up where I think it's been a no-brainer is if they got Kyrie. And with that sort of looming over the specter of everything, they might be asking themselves, well, do we need these picks to maybe facilitate a sign-and-trade for Kyrie when he reaches free agency? Is it even feasible to do that and work underneath the hard cap and actually feel the competitive roster? Are they maybe even waiting for this to collapse in the middle of the season to where they're going to want those picks? The, the Nets are just so combustible in that regard so that's why i'm like not entirely convinced that they're going to move russ because they want to keep other scenarios open i also think if you can stick it out until the middle of the season it's going to be cheaper to actually get off his deal uh, i don't want to just you know regurgitate though the same trade scenarios went through indy uh we know the one with utah there's also the Kyrie specter looms even though it's off the table right now um people have talked about the knicks one i've seen knicks fans or listened to nick Red Knicks fans, Knicks writers, listen to Knicks podcasters who think that New York would be able to get a first round pick uh, if they take on Russ. I and, and while sending out Julius Randle, I don't think that's possible. If the Knicks are including maybe some of the other picks that they have, where it's like, hey, we'll give you this Washington 2023 pick. That's probably not going to convey 2023, but let's just say this Washington pick. You give us your 2027 pick, and we're building, you know, Randle and Fournier. And then we're taking back Russ. Like maybe that's possible because then the Lakers are getting an imminent first round pick uh, that they could trade. Uh, then I, I don't like, I just don't view this possible. If you're the Lakers though, and you're looking to get out of the Russell Westbrook contract without giving up like any draft equity at all, I would view the Knicks as a viable trade partner. Yeah. Fournier is a good basketball fit. Randall's not the cleanest basketball fit, but I think he helps you in second units more than Russ could at this point. And then if you've kept your draft equity, you can worry about if you want cap space or you need to move those guys. I mean, look, Julius Randle's contract, I don't. I think it's probably one of the worst in the NBA, but the, the Westbrook number is just so massive that teams, even for a year, are going to just get you know, twitchy about it and be hesitant to take it on. And so if I'm the Knicks, just by virtue of creating the extra cap space and if you're going to buy out Russell Westbrook anyway, you give up, let's say, Fournier and Randle for Russell Westbrook. You're getting rid of him. Now you're opening up minutes for more of the kids. You're not getting a first round pick, but you've gotten out of Julius Randle's contract and he has four years left on it at 106 million guaranteed. You've gotten out of the final two years of Evan Fournier's deal. He's uh, two years and 36.9 million guaranteed. And then a $19 million team option, which I'd be shocked if any team is picking that up in 24, 25. So you've now gotten out of those deals. No, no extra draft equity, but you have just cleared the runway for players this season when looking at, you know, certainly the offensive pecking order for RJ Barrett, if Julius Randall isn't there, but also just ensuring that without Randall there, you're, you have a reason to play Obi Toppin. And then that's even by extension, like, yeah, there should be more minutes available for, for Jericho Sims, even with Isaiah Hartenstein and um, Mitchell Robinson in the fold. So if you need to expand the deal and you want a first round pick, maybe you're sending Cam Reddish out as part of that. If I'm the Lakers and it's one first round pick for Randall Fournier and Reddish, in exchange for us, I'm, I'm honestly probably not doing that. I'm the Lakers, but if you can get the Knicks to pull the trigger on that deal without giving up a draft pick, and if I'm the Knicks, I would do it. I'm just flat out. I care more about opening up minutes this season by getting rid of Russ, and then they're going to have more cap flexibility moving forward or sooner, I should say, as well. I would absolutely do that. It would just be what's the Lakers' 
appetite for taking on long-term money. Um, the other one that I've kind of identified is I'm just surprised we haven't heard more about it is the Spurs. Uh, they have like, as I'm recording this, I have them at like just still over a, a truckload of cap space. And so like between 30 and $33 million, just somewhere in between there. And so you could almost just do um, Josh Richardson and like, are they giving up Zach Collins in that deal? Uh, will they give you Romeo Langford maybe, or do, are they actually high on him? But you could do Richardson plus another salary for Russ. And it's going to be a smaller salary because Doug McDermott's the highest paid player on the Spurs right now. Look, Josh Richardson and Doug McDermott saves the Lakers like 20 something million dollars. Those two combined make about like a little under 26 million. Um, Russ is slated to make 47.1. And so you're looking at over 20 million in savings just off the top there. And we know LA does sort of run itself like a, like a, like a small market team on in certain instances. Uh, how much you have to give up to actually make that package work. I don't know what a 2026 swap get it done just because Doug McDermott is kind of a, no, it's not because the Spurs are taking on so much money, but if they would do that for one pick on the Lakers, I might consider it. Doug McDermott has money on the books for next season. It's 13.8 million. It's expiring. They could probably just jettison him and while well, including a second round pick would be my guess. Josh Richardson actually helps them by actually giving them a three and D wing. When you look at their roster right now, they do not have a three and D wing. The closest they get is Juan Toscano Anderson or maybe even Beverly himself. I just like, it's not Troy Brown Jr. Uh, it's not, I, if you wanted to go Austin Reeves, I don't know if he's like three enough there. Is, is he wing enough there either? So you would get a three and D wing who had quietly a good season splitting time uh, between Boston and San Antonio last year. I would do that deal if I were the Lakers as well. And if you're going to then, you know, hold on to Russ or see what other opportunities evolve as the season goes on. Maybe Charlotte becomes one if they're just looking to get off Gordon Hayward's deal or maybe even Terry Rozier's deal because they're sort of looking to start anew. It's very uh, it's very unclear what's happening there. So those are some, I think San Antonio and the Knicks one I laid out specifically are just some different ones that I haven't heard in a lot talked about. No name for God. Do you know of any all-in-one metric that empirically indicates the value of young players? Well, the issue I find with LeBron, EPN, Darko, BPM, et cetera, is that they are, these are based on production. And since young ones usually have to carve out their spot in the rotation on good teams or on bad teams with good minutes, their production sucks, making the, the aforementioned stats useful to describe their production, but useless for extrapolating their potential. So flat out, I've heard um, of, I guess not actual names, but, I have heard that there are teams that either have or have been looking to develop these metrics that focus less on production without context, really, by the way, and are more about projecting. And I have no doubt there are proprietary ones um, within organizations. I don't know of names specifically. And even if I did, I wouldn't, you know, if I did know them, I, I wouldn't be able to release them because I feel like that's the only way that I would um, be able to know them. I will say, when you're sort of looking at, I think that there is a movement or not a movement, but a sentiment around the league that they do need to do a better job or there is there a focus, I should say, on having these context dependent projection based stats eventually out there. So maybe they will be public. Um, I, I think something that's useful right now is if you can get a subscription to B-Ball Index um, or Backpicks.com, I'm paying for both. They do have certain, you know, I would call them context dependent stats that are out there. And I'll use B-ball index, like being able to look at the, um, the the spacing of, of certain lineups. And then you can see how that translates to how a player is um, faring. You can look at uh, the level of shot difficulty on all of their, their field goal attempts. So you could see, okay, well, 
Donovan Mitchell's true shooting percentage might have been lower than uh, Seth Curry's, but look at the shots Seth Curry was taking versus Donovan Mitchell when you're talking about off the dribble and self-creation. And so I think those stats are very important and are the best that we have that are publicly available. They will be sub behind submodels, and they're definitely not like all, they're not these catch-all metrics, but those are just inherently flawed. I think that they are very useful, including NBA math total points added, when trying to gauge the value of a player, especially established ones. Um, and when they're all sort of agreeing on a player, I do think that absolutely matters. Uh, but like they, they're just inherently flawed, and we can't boil down the production of any player, whether we're talking about, the, not even production, but the future of a player, down to one metrics. I think that you need to look at the ones that are out there that can be context-dependent, like that's baked in, or can you can you provide the context yourself where it's, okay, Donovan Mitchell, true shooting percentage lower than Seth Curry, just as an example last season. But I'm going back, I'm looking, oh, Donovan Mitchell took like, I'm just, I don't even know the number, 70% of his shots uh, makes went, on, went unassisted, where Seth Curry, you know, only 30% of his shot makes went unassisted. Uh, I do think that can help, but that doesn't, uh, sorry, no name for God, that doesn't answer your question on young players specifically, but... I do throw a lot of metrics out the window anyway with young players. And so if you can find one that's, oh, he's shooting a very high percentage despite taking a bunch of, like having one of the highest shot difficulties among rookies or among, you know, players with fewer than three or fewer years of experience. I think that stuff can still be telltale. No Name for God also asks, which teams can make an offer to the Nets for Ben Simmons? Um, and who could he benefit the most? I low-key have Boston, uh, Atlanta, and the Nuggets. So Boston, I probably hate, with Ben Simmons because they need like, if they need anything, it's just like the a shot creator and maker. And Ben is not that he's a great passer, but just in terms of being a higher level shot creator. And I don't know that they even have the spacing infrastructure to make that work, especially because who are you moving there for Ben Simmons? Even if it's Derek white, and Malcolm Brogdon, you've, you've still hurt your spacing by getting rid of Malcolm Brogdon. And certainly if Jalen Brown's inclusive in there, I wouldn't mind Atlanta still, but the fit with the Murray is pretty poor. Even if you like it with Trey young, I wouldn't mind the Nuggets. Um, would you give up Michael Porter Jr. for Ben Simmons right now? That's really a flex on just how much you trust Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic to adapt. Playing him with Eric um, Aaron Gordon, that could get a little clumpy. Um, Bruce Brown Jr. is now on that team, but I, I, there'd be something to the Nuggets. Uh, I'd be curious if just like, would one of these rebuilding teams still want to take a chance on him? Or I wouldn't mind seeing Ben Simmons and Charlotte at this point, what do they have to give up aside from using Gordon Hayward or Terry Rozier as a salary anchor? Like, do you like, do you like James Booknight? Do you like Kai Jones? Would they be willing to move Mark Williams in that deal? Uh, you could maybe get, if you're the net specifically, like, Oh, Kelly Oubre Jr. And Terry, Kelly Oubre Jr. And Gordon Hayward. Does that do it for you as a return? And then maybe are you even getting a pick out of that? Charlotte's pretty encumbered with the picks they can offer given how protected the 2023 first they owe um, New York is that just projects very far out. I think to 2026, if I'm not mistaken. So that's like, you know, uh, Charlotte's pick. It's not over to the Knicks anymore. It's to, I think it ended up in Denver. So um, my apologies there. Uh, like Charlotte, I wouldn't mind to see, like I said, I, I think you're onto something with Denver. Nobody else really springs to mind. Like I wouldn't mind seeing him on one of the rebuilding squads. If it was a Houston, maybe, um, but they just like, you have Jabari Smith Jr. there. You have Jalen Green and Alper and Shangun. I don't know where Ben Simmons fits into that. I maybe wouldn't mind seeing him in San Antonio, but I'm more interested in seeing if they can get their offensive identity through a Josh Primo and Devin Vassell combination. And what's it like with Malachi Branham and Jeremy Sowen? And do we give Kelvin Johnson more creation? Uh, I still would not mind Portland if you're just looking for, I don't know what they would be able to send back 
you there at this point. I'm not giving up Jeremy Grant for him. He's just an easier fit. Uh, but like if the Nets were for some reason, when he's trade eligible, interested in Nurkic, uh, you have Josh Hart there as well. And there's Justice Winslow. Like you could get to the salaries. Do the Nets want Gary Payton the second? I, I still wouldn't mind Portland. I'm not, if it's Anthony Simons, Damian Lillard, Jeremy Grant, uh, that's a, and, and Ben Simmons, excuse me. Like that's a really interesting core. I'm not giving up Shaden Sharp for Ben Simmons. His value is falling too low there. And I don't think the Nets are going to be looking to move him at least until um, they see whether he can play um, and remain healthy. And if he can, and they want to move him, I, I would very much question what type of value they'd be able to get back for him. But so I'll say Denver, Portland, and I would be like really interested, I think, to see him in Charlotte. Th those are just my three. I don't like Dallas is a no. I don't want to see him in Detroit or Golden State. Uh, if you really wanted to throw him in Indy, that seems like maybe a gamble they could make. Is are the Spurs interested in Miles Turner and up uh, to the Nets like like on a Miles Turner and Buddy Heald? Is like that even enough? You're not going to get Benedict Matherin for him or Tyrese Halliburton. So, uh, yeah, my three would be Charlotte, Portland, and I think Denver's just interesting. I wouldn't necessarily advocate for them trading MPJ for Ben Simmons if that was just the framework of a deal, but that would be sort of a fun challenge trade. Both of them have back issues, so perhaps very apropos i don't i think you could also just like what if ben simmons was floating around in utah at this point he doesn't really have to give their rebuild the direction um or maybe even washington him and bradley beals your backcourt that could be kind of fun so i just added some other teams i actually really like the utah and washington idea i don't think ben simmons ruins your tank single-handedly so utah could very much slow play his back and have him play like every like once a week or something like that this season again it just comes down to the jazz aren't going to give up future assets to get them. You'd be more likely to get that from a Washington or a Charlotte um, Denver with Michael Porter Jr. Having the cha challenge trade. I don't even know if Portland would give up a pick for him, to be honest. Would you trade Anthony Simons for Ben Simmons? Mike, I just not without knowing Ben Simmons is back. Like if that was the straight up trade, it, it can't be uh, money would need to exchange hands there, but food for thought. I probably wouldn't uh, just because then you're really, you're not aging up your team, but it's, you just got Anthony Simons on that four-year deal. And if the Nets are willing to do that trade, it's probably because Anthony Simons is, is balling out. Uh, we'll have to see. The Nets are just so combustible. I don't know what's going to happen with them this year. Real Syrup 22-19. I was having a discussion with a friend about how the NBA can better promote its international stars and would love to get your thoughts. The basic line of thinking being the NBA seems to want to move from the LeBron, Steph, Durant era straight to guys like Tatum, Ja, Booker, Ant-Man, Zion, etc., and is praying those guys pop instead of embracing the international stars who already proven to be generational talents like Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid, who've dominated MVP voting the last few seasons and already, and in Giannis's case, already won a championship. Luca is the exception, of course. The NBA loves him. Seems like the NBA almost begrudgingly promotes these guys because of the success they've had, not because they truly want them to be the face of the league. I could list a dozen examples, but this question is already long, so I'll wrap it up. Do you agree the NBA can do better with his international stars? And if so, any thoughts on how? I don't know what the thoughts would be other than leaning into it. Um, and I think, look, we've just seen, this might be a good example. We've just got word that Scoot Henderson and Victor Weminyama are going to square off in a game, uh, I think October 4th and 6th. It's just an exhibition game. Can you just expose NBA fans to these players when you know that they're coming down the NBA draft pipeline uh, before they get there? Gian There's a case like Giannis where, not that there was no way to know about him, but uh, like... Luca was very much, he was still heralded as this unknown prospect, but everyone knew he was making the jump to the NBA. He was in the number one pick conversation. Like, can you somehow expose fans to his games um, before he's getting there? The other thing that I think they could do, and I know that this has like happened in the past, even if you're not going to play uh, games like in, you know, we're, Nikola Jokic isn't going to play in Serbia. They're not going to have an NBA game in Serbia. I mean, that'd be 
fucking cool that maybe have more preseason games there. I, I don't know how COVID um, and traveling now changes that though. Like post, like post pandemic world, we're not even post pandemic, but post quarantine. So that would be something they consider, but can you maybe run like exhibition games where it's, yeah, teams will have off afterwards, but you're catering to the timeline that's in Serbia to draw in those fans a little bit more. Maybe that's stupid. Can you have like, if you know you have these transcendent stars from these countries, can you have like, and maybe some teams have done this already, but uh, can you have like a Slovenian national night if, and if you're the Mavericks? Uh, so Luca's they've done a good job promoting Luca, obviously. So I think it starts maybe before they get to the NBA, though, where... And Joel Embiid was different because he was at Kansas and the hype train was up on him. But like, you weren't overexposed to him. You were more exposed to Andrew Wiggins, which I guess could still be considered an international prospect um, being from Canada. Uh, if they're not going to NBA colleges, and even like, look, if they're in the G League, if they go that route too, I feel like we're not as exposed as we need to be to those types of prospects. Um, but you, I think you could definitely just like, why can't we play a pre if insofar as it's feasible, why can't we play preseason games in Serbia or something? Or like I said, have like these, is there like, can we have an international week? We have these rivalry weeks. Can we have international star week where there's like homage being paid to these players where they come from looking at their backgrounds, um, talking about their countries um, so that people aren't confusing like Euro basket with FIBA basketball that's happening. And I look among the casual NBA fans, like, like, or NBA fans in general, like I get the confusion, but when you have media outlets even mixing those up, that that's probably not great. So I don't think, honestly, I don't have a good answer to this. I hope at least that thought was semi-coherent. Some of them work. We did have no name for God responded to this in Discord. Um, I've been operating under better... Uh, yeah, I think the NBA is a market and the product is fun. Current fraction that dominates is domestic or US, U.S. fraction, while Asia, Europe, Africa are slowly coming up. The marketing strategy NBA takes uh, is looking at the max revenue, and in the short term, that seems to be U.S. But the fact, as you pointed out, that international players are dominating will certainly expand the national interest and give NBA motivation to push new young international prospects like Victor W., just my two cents worth. Uh, this was a great question from Real Syrup. I would just say, like, some of the like revenue potential would just be tied to, well, can we give these stars the exposure? And I would say like Giannis is Giannis had ad more than adequate exposure before he won his title. But even just having this is a symptom of the rest of NBA coverage. The fact that we're, we're waiting for him to leave Milwaukee to end up in a bigger market. You can absolutely do a better job to support players um, when they're on these, these teams. Like, can you on the smaller market, non-glamorous mid-market teams, which is to say, you can't dictate what ESPN and what Bleacher Report is going to talk about. And I'm, I work for Bleacher Report. That being said, like when we have a broadcast and we're talking about Giannis's free agency, but it's actually like Celtics Lakers. That's on the, like, that's a problem. Like, or if it's bucks versus whoever, and you're still talking about Giannis's free agency, part of that coverage needs to change. I love transactions, but I also love basketball and I'd be open to, you know, like being able to dive deeper into these players' backgrounds during the broadcast, like having these segments. Can you do a better job of having that just on NBA TV, which you have direct control over? So um, I think it just certainly starts with the best way to better promote them is to promote them more and maybe at different points. And like I said, maybe it could be like an international prospect or star week or both at this point, like we're doing with rivalry week. Uh, I think, do think a bigger thing could be, and I use this as an example for Lucas specifically, the fact that so little was known about him heading into the NBA draft for, yeah, the analysts that cover the NBA draft, but just like his name was just out there, but there just wasn't enough information flowing 
about him, in my opinion. Like you could also make a better effort to do that. And is there a way to to showcase these games on NBA TV or just somehow like through segments or something where you're tackling these, not as ESPN or just Bleach Report, but on NBA TV or just on the NBA.com website, having more articles on them when you're looking at uh, ahead and trying to project forward. Um, that would be my two cents there, or hopefully it was at least a one cent worth one cent on that. Those are those are my thoughts. Uh, HP Burgi asked, what if Tim Connolly, the team president for the Minnesota Timberwolves, made the smartest move of the offseason by purposely overpaying for Gobert so that other teams couldn't get a KD deal done and he stayed in the East? I know that's not true, but honestly, what if he felt like he had to get the deal done before KD was traded so that the trade didn't um, end up at the price on Gobert? Basically the opposite of what happened. Interesting to think about. Uh, look, I'm all for the pettiness. I like to think that Giannis held up his extension decision just to let teams who really wanted him go through their free agency process in, is that 2020? I think it was. Apologies if I have the year wrong. Only to then be like, oh no, I'm staying in Milwaukee. And there were teams that sort of planned around him maybe hitting the free agency market. Um, I will say, like whether it's Danny Ainge or it's Tim Connolly, Jazz, Timberwolves, both of them, like, they done fucked up the superstar like trade market value. I know we've seen... Look, Anthony Davis went for the, a ton in the final year of his contract, and I think that should have been more of a, a flashpoint for all of us where there was a there actually was a market of one team negotiating on that. Maybe one would have come out of left field like Cleveland did with Donovan Mitchell, but he still went for a King's Ransom despite you know going into the last year of his deal because we knew the Lakers were going to resign him, but like they could have also tried to play that to their advantage like they did with Paul George, and that ended up blowing up in their face, worked out quite well for the Clippers. Uh, and even the Thunder, they were able to trade Paul George and Kawhi without ever actually having Kawhi. But you're looking at the scale that these deals are now taking place on, where it's two teams in the Timberwolves and the Cavaliers who, Gobert, we didn't know that he had a preference on any one team outside of Utah. We knew Mitchell wanted to go to New York. Cleveland's coming anyway and just throwing uh, the equivalent of, like, throwing control of six of their draft picks when you're looking at Akbaji drafting lottery this year, and then three unprotected first plus two unprotected swaps to go after Mitchell. Yes, the contract terms matter. He has three guaranteed years left on his deal before he can hit free agency, and he's also just young enough to where you feel confident making that gamble. But I do think the superstar trade market has changed forever, in part because you have these mid- to small-market teams who are, I don't want to say barren of playoff success, but there's pressure for them to succeed independent of certain eras. Cleveland without LeBron. Minnesota um, you know, since KG not having a ton of success, and even like you can argue had very minimal success with him. And what also you have the pressure on those two teams specifically. Well, we have these talented young cores. We have Carl Anthony Towns under contract. We have Anthony Edwards, who's a megastar in, in the making or about to just be one this season could be an all NBA player already. Like we just need to maximize this window because stars are requesting out or getting disgruntled. Or we're seeing a point in Utah where Donovan Mitchell is only one year into his actual max extension and getting moved already. He did not ask for this one, but we're seeing that these NBA windows are more fickle. They're tighter. And so I do think there's an incentive for teams of from all like market types to just go for it harder. And so that's going to drum up the cost of stars that you are not drafting or signing in for agency outright. Obviously I think what that does flipping it on its head, and this isn't necessarily related to Kevin Durant, but your team like the Knicks who built up all this equity to trade for a star all of a sudden, you're going to be more hesitant to do that because you can't, like, within a couple years of each other, feasibly trade for two stars anymore, it feels like. I'm sure that will change at some point or there will be exceptions, but how the Knicks match the Cavs' offer, that's what's lost in all this. Is people who think that two unprotected first and RJ were by far and away better than what the Cavs were actually ended up giving 
Utah, I that's arguable at best. I think rebuilding teams like the Jazz just prefer the unknown of draft picks rather than even if you think RJ Barrett's extension is fine. And by the way, it is like you just prefer the the anonymity associated to these draft picks, that mystery upside to what you can do not only after you use them, but if you wanted to flip them. And there's also just that tied to the unknownness of down the line with these teams. If you're sending Donovan Mitchell to Cleveland or you're sending Rudy Gobert, who's in his 30s, to Minnesota, you're like, well, their distant future might not be promising. Mitchell could leave Cleveland. Rudy Gobert could regress extreme, like in an extreme fashion. So I do think, in part because of Tim Connolly, this was like this. I really do think it goes back a lot to the KD trade, uh, the AD trade. But like this trade market for stars has ostensibly changed forever. And it might change the way then that I don't really think any team was actually thinking that they could trade for two stars and that's how they're going to rebuild. Most of them know that you need to get that first one in there via the draft. The Knicks have yet to grasp that. It, that's just that much is clear. Even though they held under their youngsters, um, the result of what happened for them now is fine. It doesn't, you know, the fact that they were in it at all offered as much as they did, including RJ Barrett, doesn't necessarily imply that they get that. And that does pertain to the KD trade sweepstakes because that's why if you're the Nets, you were asking for the moon, but his case was even harder to grapple with because he's older than Gobert. KD's going to his age 34 season. He's not been as healthy as Gobert over the past three years. And so what are you actually supposed to get for him? Is it acceptable to get as much for Gobert um, when it's Kevin Durant, who's a top 10, top five player versus Rudy Gobert, who at his best is he's an all NBA player, but he's between top 15 and top 25. Um, at his peak. So this is just like stuff that I think is really going to change. And maybe it'll be sort of addressed in the next CBA, but I also don't know how you, aside from creating uh, an avenue to there being a Renaissance and free agency, which maybe the cap spike, um, even by virtue of smoothing can help with that because the cap's still going to go up certain players. It's not going to be worth it for them to extend. Think of Donovan Mitchell. Uh, he's all likelihood going to get to free agency in 2025, because if he extends off this number, it won't hit his max max salary. So, um, yeah, this is, it's fascinating. I think that the star trade market though has changed forever and, uh, HP Burgie, that's definitely at least in part because of Tim Connolly and of course, Danny Ainge. I do hope that he did, uh, the, that uh, negotiations unfold the way that they did to sabotage the Kevin Durant trade sweepstakes. I'm all for those conspiracy theories. Uh, they also ask who would win a one on one Kevin Durant or Isaiah Thomas with a BB gun. It would still be. Kevin Durant, he could just get the shot off over the top of everything, including um, BB pellets, I would think. Uh, Fool asked, what are the chances that Anthony Edwards can make the leap needed to give the Wolves the perimeter threat and scoring punch needed for a championship run? They seem to be aiming for that with the Gobert deal. And if that kind of leap is out of the question this early, are there other areas of improvement on the roster where they can be a legit contender by the end of the season? Look, I don't think they need Anthony Edwards to be an all-NBA player for them this year for them to be a title contender, or at least a title contender in the the image of the regular season. They could be a top four, top three, top two team in the West, even if he's not an all NBA player. But when you watch Anthony Edwards, there's room for him to grow as a passer. And he's already made some really complicated passes. And I think when you look at his off the dribble shot, making showed even more flashes of that um, after the all-star break specifically could break them down. I was looking at like specific dates actually earlier, but let's just use the post all-star break as cleaner shoots nearly 35% on his off the dribble threes during that span. Uh, that is the pathway. You need him to be your lead playmaker. And I think he's capable of that down the line. Uh, do I think he would be better than Jason Tatum as a passer this season? He might be able to get up to the Jason Tatum level this season, which perhaps that's enough. If you're looking at other areas of improvement, it's just 
what is sort of the uh, you know if the, the defense I think is going to be wind up being spectacular unless we see Rudy Gobert just implode. But can you get enough three point volume and shot making out of this group that you have? And maybe you have enough of it with Towns and Jalen Noel. But like I'm not about dead eye accurate shooters outside of those two. And a lot of that could come down to, well, Anthony Edwards on set jumpers. Is D'Angelo Russell going to shoot better than he did last year on pull-up threes? Uh, how many minutes and what type of accuracy can, accuracy can you get out of Torian Prince? Will Kyle Anderson go back to hitting his corner threes at a high clip? I think he dropped a little bit last year. What about McDaniels? Can he up his percentages and the volume with which he's taking those threes? And so that would be just looking at this roster. If you were to say Anthony Edwards is, let's say, lateral compared to last year. Maybe he makes, takes more strides on the defensive end, which I would probably bet on given the infrastructure that's around him now. Uh, let's just say he's by and large or close to it, the same offensive player. I think your quickest path to playing above your expected level, if you don't have Anthony Edwards making the All-NBA leap, would just be this roster gets collective improvement on their, I don't want to call it necessarily floor spacing, but just their other non-elite shooters. And like we have Towns, and I think at this point you're going to trust Jalen Noel there uh maybe you trust you know if you're a dude are do you trust jordan mclaughlin how much is he actually going to play do you trust is austin rivers insofar as he's going to be part of the rotation do you trust him to really knock down his shots um i'd probably bet austin rivers fine mclaughlin sub 32 percent last year on threes and it wasn't on a high enough volume did shoot um 38.2 as a rookie 35.9 is sophomore season so like it's there but never on absurdly high volume that would be just their their quickest path to improvement i think you're probably most likely to get that this, I'm talking outside of Anthony Edwards would be, I look at D'Angelo Russell, 34% on threes, eight attempts. That's someone who can have a season, whether he's taking most of them off the dribble or off the catch, where he's shooting eight, nine, 10 attempts per game. And he's right there with Carl Anthony Towns and not maybe not shooting 41%, but shooting 37, 38, 39%. And I do think, again, independent of Anthony Edwards, if he's mostly the same player or only incrementally better rather than monumentally better, uh, I see like that is their path to really being a threat in the West, just because I have such a big belief in their defense and the structure that they have there now with Gobert, with Jaden McDaniels, with Kyle Anderson, with, with Anthony Edwards as well. Next question comes from JT Alexander. Bleacher Report wrote a team of five overrated NBA players of the past 10 years, which has listed some interesting responses on Twitter. I'm almost sorry to ask Dan, but who are your top, who are your five overrated players of the last 10 years? So I'm just going to tease. I did a YouTube exclusive on this that I published on Labor Day. Go check that out. I will say DeMar DeRozan made that list. I am vehemently against that decision um, with respect to my uh, employer. I think there's a difference between overrated and a very good player who needs specific circumstances under which to be optimized. And DeMar DeRozan, to me, I would argue, is probably more so underrated because did you ever really expect him to get through LeBron James? He was never mentioned in the same tier as LeBron where you thought that he was going to be able to lead the Raptors with Kyle Lowry past those uh, those Cavs teams. I actually think he's probably like the single most underrated passer of the last half decade. Uh, maybe the single most might be like a little bit too, too far, but he's certainly up there. Uh, I would say my most, I'm going to only give you one because I concluded some other ones. I'll give you two. And in the last 10 years, uh, Rondo specifically, I just don't, I go back and I look and the teams for Boston and some, a lot of them date back um, pre 10 years now. So maybe I am going too far back. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I just feel like we sort of all overhyped the way that he would dribble the air out of the ball just because, yeah, he would move with it and like his passes were pretty and he did set up guys. But the Celtics were just like, once he lost top shelf talent around him, 
dealt with injuries, but just never elevated the play of noticeably inferior players. Like never got them to that next level. And like he was at all these different stops. Uh, so I would say Rondo is probably the, one of the most overrated players for me. I also think currently, uh, and maybe I'm reading too much into I got YouTube comments recently that said Mitchell Robinson, multiple, not just one person. Uh, Mitchell Robinson's a better defender than Evan Mobley. And I just feel like, Having discussed with people wondering why, well, if Robert Williams III can be what he is, why can't Mitchell Robinson be viewed as this asset? And then we've also seen him compared to Gobert. Like, Mitchell Robinson has never shown the passing that RW3 has shown. I think his switching is – like, the defense in space, maybe not switching, is just not as dynamic as what we've seen from RW3. He's clearly no Gobert. He, he's one of the least dynamic offensive players. He can't put the ball on the floor. He can't make a pass. Um, out of the like out of the post on the short roll. Um, this is not someone who's gonna have a bunch of like head or up fakes around the basket to adjust his shot. It's just like, and he got four years and sixty million dollars. Good for him. It's on a declining scale. You want to bet on him staying healthy, getting better, fine. But he just feels overrated to me. The rest of my players, I'm teasing our YouTube exclusive JT Alexander. Go check out that list. Uh, Demos Cole, RJ Batter is not a bad scorer. So how are his extremely inefficient splits explained. Are they related with general dysfunction of the team? Lack of true point guard, general decrease in three-point percentages in the NBA or a combination of all the previous points or something else in addition, maybe. So two things stand out to me. One is role inconstancy for him, where he has been very much asked to at points to be a complimentary scorer and to dot the three-point arc. And he's shooting 37-plus percent on catch-and-shoot threes for his career. That's a fine number. But then last season... He's sort of tasked towards the end with running the entire show. And we saw a lot of flashes, some really nice passes from him, some really nice sort of um, movement and cadence once he got into the lane, took a bunch of shots at the rim, still struggled to, f- to finish as efficiently as you should, but he's not having these consistent opportunities to work on his game at that level. Will he get that this season with Jalen Brunson there? I'll question it if Julius Randle is still in the lineup. The other thing is, I think a player like him, who is, to me, never even going to be the level of off-the-dribble jump shooter that DeMar is from the mid-range. He can bring his percentages up. Just, like, yeah, I could see him, like, dribbling into pull-ups. That's fine. But never going to be sort of these, you know, quick-fire three-point shots off the dribble or mid-range jumpers off the dribble. You need to surround him with a bunch of spacing. And, like, yeah, I do believe that RJ could, like, have a nifty floater um, and you're going to trust him, like, using his uh, right hand more on the perimeter. There are things that I think he will improve, uh, but as someone who's not super reliant on athleticism, it's even just like, is you know, Jimmy Butler is someone who's been very effective with his downhill pressure, not relying on his jumper, but he just has a level of explosion, I'd argue, that R.J. Barrett does not. The spacing around him needs to be better, and that's not an indictment of R.J. Barrett, really. That's just an indictment of if the Knicks want him to be the guy, you need to maximize the roster fit around him, and I don't think, I would even say that this could be the case for Jalen Brunson, is that so much of what he does best happens inside the arc and putting defenses on tilt. I don't know if the Knicks are going to have enough shooting around him, enough three-point volume or enough three-point efficiency or just enough players standing where they need to be when you look at Tibbs' propensity for wanting to play a traditional center. Is he going to let Isaiah Hartenstein camp uh, beyond the arc or on the perimeter like the Clippers would do a lot last year? I don't know. So that would that would be my concern. I'm not trying to say it's not all on RJ, but I think he is probably underrated on a national level while being overrated amongst Knicks fans in general. And there's a happy medium. I think that that happy medium hasn't been reached because the context of his role has been so inconsistent. And then the Knicks have not been built for us to even see what a higher volume, high usage, best version of RJ Barrett looks like. We saw the higher volume, high usage version of him towards the end of last year. And Fred Katz has been on this at the athletic 
um, did a bunch of fantastic pieces about his performance post uh, New Year. But like the roster still just didn't fit what I think you need if you want RJ Barrett to be your primary ball handler. And so that would be something to watch for moving forward. Um, adding on with, this is from unbiased Pistons fan, uh, adding on with no name for God, there was one vote for the, oh, I already did the, so we had questions about the ESPN NBA survey, did a podcast on that already. That was its own podcast. Check it out. It's also on YouTube as well. Uh, Betsy cash money. What do you think Jay Crowder's trade value is and what makes sense as a landing spot? Suns fans are convinced Jordan Clarkson is a feasible trade return, but I don't see how that makes any sense for Utah since Jay is early 30s and more valuable to a contender, not a rebuilding team. Chicago or Brooklyn have some needs in the front court. I assume Phoenix is targeting more playmaking, shot creating in return. Kobe White, question mark, LOL. Uh, Betsy Cash Money, I do not wish Kobe White upon the Phoenix Suns as someone who has been bullish that the Suns are still going to be really good. I also, so what's interesting about Jay... I, I agree everything with that Betsy cash money says, I agree with everything there that the Suns, if they're going to level up, it's, I don't even want to say they need a third best offensive player because that could be Aiden, but they need like a third best ball handler. Who's not Mikhail bridges. Or if you think Aiden's going to get more outside in work this year or Cameron Payne, um, Jordan Clarkson would be that he doesn't, if you're going to go that route where it's really all offense too, I need more rim pressure and free throw frequency than I'm going to get from Jordan Clarkson. I'd also like someone who I'd be more comfortable playing with both Booker and Chris Paul. And quite frankly, Jordan Clarkson defensively is not going to be that for me. And if you're losing Jake Crowder at the four, it's Mikael Bridges and Aiton. That puts an awful lot of pressure on the other four players on the court. Maybe it works, but you're like small-ish in a bet. Like, yeah, Jordan Clarkson is, what is he? Six, I don't even see six, five or something. But like Devin Booker in that six, five, um, six, six territory, Jordan Clarkson, six, four. And just like Chris Paul, we know he's small. So I don't necessarily love that. And I would argue that I think Jay Crowder is worth a first round pick to a contender. Like I think Miami would give up a first round pick for Jay Crowder right now. And maybe that's in part because they would need to get off Duncan Robinson as part of that deal. Uh, if I were the jazz, just because I have so many guards and not enough like wings or forwards at this point, I would do um, the money does work straight up. I believe because Jay Crowder is making in the tens this season. I'll double check that as I'm speaking right now, but he's at 10.2 million. And so you have Jordan Clarkson at, uh, he's at 13.3 this year with a player option for 14.3. So yes, that, that would work. I would probably do it if I'm Utah, to be honest, if the Suns are going to include an asset, even a tiny one, all the better for me. So, uh, like, yeah, hell yeah. I would do that. If I'm Utah, I wouldn't do it if I was Phoenix. Um, Betsy cash money mentioned other teams like, yeah, Brooklyn could really use Jay Crowder. Uh, they did sign, Utah Watanabe, and that's where Marquise Morris went as well, I believe. I don't really know what they have to give up. Like, you want, you're not going to get Cam Thomas from them. Uh, and, like, you're not, and they have TJ Warren there now, too. Uh, they're not going to get, and they have Royce O'Neal. So I don't know that they would give you, and like, not, neither of those guys give you what you need. Like, Seth Curry would be interesting in Phoenix, but he's not enough of a ball handler, I think, to give the Suns what they need. Um, other teams that spring to mind, like, Cleveland, I think Jay Crowder would be a good fit there. But again, what is Cleveland sending? Like, do you want Karis LeVert on the Suns? There might be something you can work out there if they're willing to take, uh, you know, like, do you still like Torrey Craig, for instance, in Phoenix? Do you? View, I don't know how to view Landry Shamit's contract. I don't think it's as bad as it's painted out to be. It's two years, um, barely guaranteed over, it's about twenty two years, $21 million. Uh, and they could use, like, someone who can get up a high volume of threes. But if it was Landry Shamit and... Uh, Landry Shamit and Jay Crowder for Karis LeVert. Are you considering that if you're Phoenix? Like in theory, LeVert 
gives you a lot of what you need as a ball hander. He's a little bit bigger, so you could play him with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. The problem there then becomes Chris Paul and Devin Booker are very much the one ones that are talented at playing off the ball while Karis LeVert is not. And so that's what's so tough about Phoenix's situation is they're almost better built to wait and see if just a bigger name becomes available because then you have, yeah, Jay Crowder won't be super valuable to these younger rebuilding teams, but like he can easily be routed to third and fourth facilitating parties um, who I think would give you, you know, not a great first round pick, but would give you a first round pick if you're a contender, like identifying the heat as one, that would be a a good call for them. I'm trying to think of like another team that where I could really see it. Uh, Like, like Boston's not going to do it. Would would Atlanta do it? Like, yeah, their picks are all all over the place there. Uh, Dallas doesn't really have one. Denver doesn't have a lot of pick equity. So the teams that would give up first round picks, a lot of them just don't have first round picks to give. And you're not going to get like, you know, the the Lakers, you're not going to get, take on the Lakers bad money, which would be Russ. Like, is there a third and fourth team deal where that comes up? But I could see for sure a team like, would, would Toronto even consider it later in the season at the deadline? That's maybe a decision they make around then. Um, Then, excuse me, would Memphis consider it? That's a team. Miami as well. Uh, Milwaukee doesn't have like first round pick assets, but if you wanted Marjan Bochamp, like, is that something they could do? Again, then you get into the issue of, well, what is Phoenix getting back in this? And so, that is why the Karis LeVert stuff is a little interesting. And if you're getting off, I would say Cleveland would need to take back. Uh, well, and I mean, like part of what's difficult for them is they they have a ton of room. Oh, they know they do have more room under the tax than I think, than I thought. So if you wanted to go LeVert for Jay Crowder plus salary X, I don't know. Like, do you think that's campaign? Um, do the Suns not want to pay him his $6 million? Or is it more likely to be Tory Craig? Or is it Landry Shamit? Like those are deals that could work. Uh, it could be Darius Arch as well, but I kind of think Phoenix needs him and he's more valuable to Phoenix than he would be for Cleveland. And so something like that, I don't know if it's perfect, but could keep an eye on. And I wouldn't hate Levert in Phoenix. Um, Betsy Cash Money asks, where do I think Montrose Harrell will end up? He's in Philly. And I'm so mad because it's after I released the Sixers look ahead. Uh, the pickings were pretty slim on that. So let's talk about the Montrose Harrell to Philly move very quickly. I, I guess I like it for the regular season. I wanted to see more Paul Reed. With the Sixers. And now you're giving Doc Rivers another former big of his from the Clippers, just like you did with DeAndre Jordan, that he's probably going to play ahead of Paul Reed. Now I get it. Joel Embiid's going to miss games. You need innings eaters for the regular season. And if I trusted Doc Rivers to still balance the development of even Charles Bassey or Paul Reed, go ahead. But I also think like Philly's better off running lineups with PJ Tucker at the five when Embiid's off the court and Paul Reed together. Like that's your front court. Uh, I guess what makes Montrose Harrell appealing here is if you're playing him in minutes with PJ Tucker or Tobias Harris is the four when he's the five. Uh, it makes it easier to prioritize the spacing and get him really rampaging downhill. It's a minimum signing. I don't think it makes or breaks them. I do. I, I lament the fact that it's going to hurt the development of Paul Reed. Um, Matt Chan, the Hawks and DeAndre Hunter are due to discuss an extension, but haven't come to an agreement as of now. My question is, if he has a similar year to last year, do you see any teams that would go out and give him a big offer sheet next season? Hawks front office has made it clear they are invested in his development, but I could see a world where the price is just too high if he can't show some up uh, upward trajectory. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm with you. Uh, if he has the season he did last year, where I think the kindest way to put it is there was just, um, it was stagnant to regression on the off, stagnancy to regression from him on the offensive end. And I was just like not super impressed with him defensively, defensively but he's just still, when you look at his size um, and the way that he uses space to his advantage, uh, he's rock solid there. Is this someone like, in theory, he's not worth, let's use OG Ananobi money here where he's OG Ananobi's at 17.4 million. 
I wouldn't give DeAndre Hunter that right now, even with the cap going up. Like that could be uh, money that he gets. Would the Pistons look at him? They're going to have a ton of cap space next season. The Cavs could technically have cap space, as Justin Rowan pointed out to me when we were talking post Donovan Mitchell. I wouldn't, if they really want to just keep leaning young and they're going to pay him as sort of a, a flyer wing. Um, but the Pistons would be interesting because they could still sort of use wings there. Uh, would Indy be invested in his development? Uh, they, they're slated to have a ton of cap space next season. Orlando still needs a 3 and D wing, so would they be comfortable? Um, and I'm not saying, like, there's Franz Wagner there. They have Jan Suggs and Paolo Bancaro, uh, Chumo Kiki there too, Gary Harris. But, like, I think you're looking at teams. There are a lot more teams with cap space, and you know, even Utah. Like, if they're just going to have money and they view Hunter as a nice developmental project, could we see them sign him to an inflated, like, two-year deal when we're talking specifically about, you know, Detroit or, or Utah? as an example. So those would be two teams right off the bat. I keep an eye on um, like if, if Charlotte like has money, but that depends on what's happening with miles bridges, not Orlando for me. No. OKC, Maybe like if they just want to throw some money around, but they'll run into roster spot issues. So I'm just going to say, keep an eye on Detroit and Utah. If things get weird with Deandre Hunter, I don't think the Spurs would do it, but if things get weird between Deandre Hunter and the Hawks this season, and they don't agree to an extension, I'd probably expect them to see, um, see him on the trade block. Because if he's not playing well, if you're not getting development from him, the Hawks are going to be substantially uh, weaker. Uh, we did talk about this on the Cavs podcast, but very quickly, Fool, how much more important is Isaac Okor's development to this Cavs team now? If he can become a reliable playoff starter, what's the ceiling of this team? Uh, the ceiling would be championship, because I think that that's what their ceiling is, if not next season, the season after. With Isaac Okor, I think it's just very important that you want to see him continue to hit uh, corner threes, improve his above the break three point percentage as well off the catch. You don't need him to do anything else now. And that might be a problem. Like, yeah, he's, he's had some nice moments where he's moving away, like without the ball towards the basket. So if you can get more of that with Mitchell and, and Darius Garland, um, but like you need him or Mobley, I will say like, you need that third guy who's going to hit three pointers reliably as part of that starting five. Can it be Okoro? Because they don't necessarily need him defensively as much anymore. Maybe you think that they do because he can defend at the point of attack. So that's even going to be important then if you don't want to put Mitchell or Garland um, on certain of those assignments. But I think offensively, and I talked about this with Justin Rowan as well, it was just from the chase down pod, he might need the ball in his hands to really be maximized more. Uh, but um, like, it's not going to happen. Now, like there's just no pathway to it. You want to see Mobley, Mitchell Garland with the ball in their hands more. And so even in the second unit, like you have Karis LeVert, Ricky Rubio will eventually be healthy. You don't want to see Asko Kuro get those reps. So can he become like dominant getting out in transition, let's say, for those Kevin Love outlet passes, um, cutting more towards the basket, just general off-ball movement? Or I think what would what will be a swing skill for him is just hitting that set three-pointer from the corner and also above the break at, let's say, Overall, a 36, 37% clip on reasonable volume. I'm talking five attempts a game. That would put the Cavs just in a very enviable situation, more so than they they already are. Adriel underscore PC. Now that Mitchell has been traded as a Miles buddy Westbrook deal get done. Uh, we did answer a version of this question before. I will say, if I had to pick the team that's most likely to get involved in a Westbrook trade right now, it is Indy. I just don't know that I have faith in it getting done at all for reasons I outlined before. Um, I'm going to say, I, I want to say no, but I just, I'm tired of saying no. And then having those moves go down. I will say that's probably the feels like would be the most likely trade. Uh, I'm just going to say no, just something about the messaging Los Angeles is putting out there. And now you're, you're punting all of a sudden on the Kyrie Irving sweepstakes. Um, Muckle would love to hear your ranking of a top five or 10 backcourt on an upcoming pod. Oh, wow. Here's a good teaser. I recorded a podcast with Adam Frommel uh, where we ranked the backcourts of every single team 
in the NBA. We separated into to six tiers. That will be dropping uh, Monday or Tuesday of next week. So keep an eye out for that. Darkwing Duck, tell me as a national media entity why I should watch my favorite team this year minus our top two from last year. Uh, so he's Darkwing Duck is a Utah Jazz fan. I will say they need to clear up the pipeline, having Jordan Clarkson there. Uh, I'm fine with Malik Beasley being there, but Jordan Clarkson and Mike Conley specifically, I'm very excited to see like what Jared Vanderbilt can do with some consistent playing time. Um, there was just a lot of wiggle to his game. I loved him in, uh, oh my God, was it Summer League or like preseason exhibition of 2021? I can't remember if he played in Summer League or not. My brain's all scrambled, but I remember clipping and watching moments of him. Uh, there's a lot of just off the dribble flair to his game. Like it's not super explosive, but he can get defense sort of just keep them spinning and turn them around and hit some like off the dribble jumpers, get a little going downhill. And I think teammates would benefit from the way defenses collapse. That's why I would watch the jazz. Also, I've heard spectacular things. Also watch Jared Vanderbilt because he is caffeine in bodily form. If he's still in Utah, Walker Kessler, a lot of people have tons of faith in his defensive ability. I don't think he's going to be quick enough to be like this dominant all NBA defender, but when you sort of look at his length and his presence around the basket or the ability to swallow shots or disrupt them a little bit away from the basket because he knows how to use his size and length, that would be another reason to watch. The Jazz do not have that pole star cornerstone prospect right now, but there are still reasons to to like there there are players that could be a part of their their next era of good basketball. And I'd also say I haven't given up fully on Nikhil Alexander Walker just yet. Uh, there is like someone who can pull back into jumpers like that and get them off. It'd be nice to see him do it more efficiently. Um, can he put it together as more of a consistent decision maker as a passer when he gets going downhill as a finisher around the basket? I'd like to see him get a bunch of reps too. So him and Jared Butler, both those would be my reasons to tune into Utah. And it'll be part of why I do tune, turn into Utah this season. Uh, da, 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 da. Can you, t Romeo, uh, Rome 8180. Can you talk about why Colin Sexton was valued so low on the marketplace? Ultimately, I don't feel like his injury concerns are that worrisome. And in the 2021 season, he averaged 24 points per game on 48, 37, 82 splits. There can have been many players his age in the history of the league to hit those shooting splits on that volume. What am I missing here? Uh, are the passing and the defense really enough to drag one of the better young scores down to a sub $20 million contract? When I compare stats to RJ Barrett's to pick another recent second contract, I feel like Barrett would have to be the best defender in the history of basketball to justify the extra 50 million. Uh, well, so Barrett didn't get an extra 50 million. He got an extra 35 million. Um, I've talked about context a lot. We did the whole pod on that. I'm sure, uh, uh, Raul who's Rome 8180 listened to that one, given how much he listens to this podcast. I will say, that I just think there's a stigma more so against smaller guards who either are not A-plus passers or they're not hitting a ton of off-the-dribble jumpers. I think Colin Sexton can be you know, a solid, like a very good to fringe star off guard when you're looking at a starting lineup or just come off the bench and I think give you enough playmaking to where he can run those units. You get him going downhill, he can make good passes off those defenses collapse. I just don't think he's ever going to have the in between game off the dribble or hit a ton of off the dribble threes. His three point volume is also suspect in general, even though he shoots it really well off the catch. But it's like I've said before, he's a 24 points per game score um, from the 21 season. And like the efficiency he had them on where he hit better than 50% of his twos and 37 plus percent of his threes. Uh, there's only a couple players in NBA history who have done that at his age. It's fewer than five. I can't remember the names. Again, I, I spoke about it on a previous pod. So I don't want to go too deep into it. I think when you look at RJ Barrett, there's also just people who are going to favor size. RJ Barrett, 6'7". Um, and he profiles at worst as someone who could be 
like his worst best case outcome, let's say, is a three and D wing because he's been rock solid defensively. I don't think he needs to be the best defender in the history of basketball. Uh, I still don't think you want him covering your toughest wing assignments to be quite frank there, but he's shooting 37 plus percent on catch and shoot threes while defending um, a pos- at a position of wing spots that are just more valuable than a lot of people consider guard defense, which Sexton is also not good at. And so there's that push and pull there. Do I think Colin Sexton has been the better offensive player to date? I would say Colin Sexton's also been the more valuable player projecting ahead though. I understand why you might be more intrigued by an RJ Barrett as opposed to uh, a Colin Sexton. Um, yeah, so like that's that's where I'm at with with Sexton there, and that is it for this mailbag. I answered a ton more questions. This went longer. I was on a deadline, and I'm going to miss it now. Um, but this was great. Please, if this is your first time checking us out, rate, review, subscribe wherever you're getting your podcast. Hit it on YouTube, like, comment, help us break the algorithm. D- follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Download every episode to help Hardware not climb up the charts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that fun stuff. Um, those the links to that are in the podcast and youtube descriptions until next time and as always leave you the shout out to the one the only the indelible the legendary the one who's actually more valuable than rj barrett and colin sexton combined frank nila kina